This is Yudaha Kohen, Brit Hazon Vision Magazine, Vision Movement, and you are listening to the Next Stage Podcast. On this episode, we're going to do something a little bit different than normal. You know, the other day, my good friend and comrade, Justin Ellis, from the Fuel for Truth organization, asked me to come and teach a webinar for his program. And I really see Fuel for Truth as very much a gateway drug into Jewish national consciousness. They wanted me to speak about my own journey, Jewish liberation, and how our struggle intersects with other struggles around the world, including the current Black-led protests in the United States. So I decided this week for the podcast to air a condensed version of the recording of the webinar that I did for Fuel for Truth. I hope you enjoy it. And uh, of course, as always, welcome any feedback listeners have. Be sure to check us out at visionmag.org and enjoy the show. All right. Uh, good afternoon and good evening, everyone. Um, welcome to our next webinar. Uh, my name is Justin Ellis. I'm the executive director of Fuel for Truth. For those who are not familiar with me or our organization, we are a nonprofit group that focuses on Israel education for specifically young professionals, but we also work with high school communities. We work with college students and other demographics. We dive deep into the history of Israel where we cover uh, certainly you know, components of the conflict, issues that frequently come up in conversations, such as the accusation of apartheid, the refugee issue. Uh, but also a lot of what we do is how do you combine the use of emotional intelligence into those conversations? So you can have civil and persuasive conversations about Israel, about this conflict, or about anything for that matter, in the most civil and persuasive way possible. Uh, we primarily do this through our boot camp program. This is a multi-week program for young professionals in person that we do in New York, Los Angeles, Boston, and Miami. Uh, unfortunately, due to COVID and everything that's going on, we can't be doing this in person. So we are now doing these webinars online to continue offering education for our alumni, our prospective boot campers, as well as our supporters around the world. Uh, tonight, I'm really excited to have a personal friend of mine, Rabbi Yehuda Cohen, join us. Uh, before I introduce the, the rabbi and certainly you know, what we're going to be talking about as far as sort of a procedure for this evening, uh, this afternoon, depending on your time zone. Yehuda and I will be talking about these topics, you know, and obviously we want you guys to engage with us. We want you to help guide this conversation. We want, you know, your questions, your thoughts to be addressed and to be heard when it comes to what we're going to be talking about today. Uh, so please use the Q&A function in Zoom in order to do so. Uh, as the conversation progresses, that's when we're going to start fielding questions from the Q&A in order to introduce them into our conversation. So any questions you have, any thoughts at any time, please put them in there. Um, so tonight we're really going to be talking about how Israel intersects with other modes of other, uh, issues of social justice. And I think this is a very timely issue given all that's going on in the world, uh, specifically where Jews are finding themselves, but also how does Israel as a country, as a concept, as a nation really fit into that. And I'm very thankful that we have, uh, Yehuda with us tonight. Uh, to start off, Yehuda, can you tell us a little bit about your background, your experience, and how that kind of fits into the work you're doing and the conversation we're going to be having? Sure. Uh, first of all, thanks for having me. I grew up in New York City, probably many of the people on the call, and I uh, didn't grow up so much in the Jewish community. I grew up you know, with everybody else. You know, this is 1980s and 90s New York. I was a teenager in the 90s. And at a certain point, I don't need to get into a whole story about me, but at a certain point, I developed a strong Jewish national consciousness. 
got very connected to what was going on in Israel. Uh, I had had a lot of experiences up to the point, you know, being a Jew in a very non-Jewish environment, uh, you know, with everyone being the Jew in that reality. And uh, then eventually wanting to know more about what that was. I, I would say as a kid, probably most of the fights I used to get into were over the fact that I was Jewish. That was a very essential part of my identity. And I, I represented more than a lot of the other Jewish kids I'd grown up with. To this day, I actually discover that some of the kids I was friends with as a teenager are actually Jews. Like this was something that people were very closeted about because in the uh, world we grew up in, it was considered to a certain extent like a sign of weakness. But I always represented, that would sometimes lead to more confrontations. Then when uh, basically when the Intifada started, the second Intifada, I felt very uncomfortable. At that point I was in college, I felt very uncomfortable with the idea that just because I had been born in New York, my job was to earn a college degree, while Jews my age, you know, in the land of Israel, were expected to pick up weapons and go fight. So I did what at the time I thought any normal person would do. I dropped out of school, I moved home to Israel, and I enlisted in the army. And uh, since then, I've been continuing to develop uh, ideologically, intellectually, spiritually. Uh, I think that uh, it's been an incredible journey. I hope it continues to be an incredible journey, Bezot Hashem. But really, one thing I can say for sure is that I've been experiencing myself as a real participant in history. Like I experienced myself living in an epic story. And, uh, and I think that's really what life's about at the end of the day, regardless of what we get involved in in life, what we do with our lives. I think that the, the point really is to be the biggest characters in the greatest story possible. No, I totally agree with that. Uh, based on the work that you currently do, as well as how it overlaps with what we're talking about today, can you describe sort of your evolution? I'm, you know, I obviously know your background, but you know I'm assuming, or it's very rightful to say, that you did not arrive in Israel 20 years ago the same person that you are now. How have you changed? How have you have evolved? And how has that informed sort of your political opinions, especially as it relates to how you see Jews, how you see Israel, and certainly with the, the context of Israel as a you know a movement for social justice or to address a historical injustice? Um, it's true. When I came to Israel, I think I was coming with a very, for lack of a better term, narrow Jewish nationalism, and also a very powerful Jewish nationalism, which I still maintain. But it was very much, you know, I, I was also looking at the conflict through the lens of the American media. Like I was, you know, before arriving in Israel, I understood what was happening. And, you know, based on the, you know, historical research that I had done and the books I had read, which were pretty much all one-sided books, but that's okay, a lot of us do that. Uh, but also through the lens of the media, which really presented the conflict as one between Arabs and Jews. And I came really believing that uh, because I'm a Jew and it's a conflict between Arabs and Jews, my role is to fight the Arabs and win. And that was kind of the where I was coming from, uh, what I was coming to. I didn't draft into the army immediately uh, after landing. That's not how it works. You have to go through a draft period and that involves a lot of bureaucracy. So what I did was uh, when I landed in Israel, I went to a yeshiva called Machon Meir. I don't know how many people here have heard of Machon Meir, but it's a yeshiva that is really on the path of, you know, it's, it's most of the 
teachers are students of Rav Kook, Rav, uh, Rav Tziyuda HaKoyen Kook, the son of Rav Avram Yitzchak HaKoyen Kook. So the ideology of the place is very deeply uh, Kabbalistic, uh, but also very deeply nationalist. And it's very connected to Jewish history and very conscious of the fact that we're living in a very a unique, incredible chapter of Jewish history. I, I'm actually a teacher there now. If anybody's interested in coming to Machon Meir, you know, feel free to message me. I teach there once a week. But at the time I was a student and I had discovered a Torah that was much bigger, uh, much more holistic, and much more inclusive and much more exciting than any of the Torah I had experienced in the United States. You know, I had had some limited experiences uh, I had been involved with Chabad on my campus a little bit, uh, which was essentially, you know, Friday night dinners. I um, had gone to Eshet Torah for a summer. I had gotten involved in the Jewish Defense League. In fact, that's where I developed kind of my national consciousness and where I started to get involved in Israel-related issues in the JDL. I don't know how many people here have heard of JDL. And I even, before just dropping out and moving to Israel, I'd even gone to Yeshiva University for a semester, expecting something radically different than what I found there. But all these interactions with Torah had positives and had negatives, and none of them really satisfied me holistically. I would say that the most satisfying for me at the time was JDL, because at least that was like very connected to the story of the Jewish people, you know, the national struggle was happening, you know, in the news, and how I can play a meaningful role in the struggle of my people right now. But when I discovered Rav Kook, when I came to Mohanir, I really experienced a Torah that included all of the things that I liked in those philosophies, um, but even things that I found interesting in, you know, the writings of uh, Spinoza or Marx or, or uh, you know, Nietzsche, like all of that was also uh, included within the Torah of Rav Kook. And I found that to be really exciting. And it's, it's actually a Torah that doesn't really exist so much in the English speaking world. It, it was really unique, I think, to Israeli society. And uh, so it was really something very new for me. And uh, I was also very politically active. Even before I went to the army, I had gone to different places in the West Bank to create new Jewish communities on different mountaintops, what they call the outposts. I had also led a number of hunger strikes to free Jonathan Pollard. This is a time when a lot of Jewish students from the United States, Canada, the diaspora in general, were afraid to go to certain places. You know, it was, I mean, I'll be honest, like when I moved to Jerusalem, Jerusalem was a war zone. Buses were blowing up almost every day. You know, restaurants I had just left, blown up, drive-by shootings in the roads. This was reality. And a lot of students who were in Israel were afraid to, you know, take buses and afraid to travel to certain places. So one of the things we did at the time was we began to organize Shabbat experiences in different places where a lot of foreign students were afraid to go, like Hebron. Probably Hebron was the place we would go the most. Uh, but we also went to Gaza, to different Jewish communities in Gush Katif, and also to places in the Shomron, like uh, I think Alon More and uh, Malay Lebona. We would organize different trips uh, to really connect a lot of these students to these places and to the Jews who lived in these places, and to really recognize that the Jews living in these places we're really living lives bigger than themselves. We're really living in a story bigger than their just individual personal 
achievement, personal success, personal advancement, but were really living the story of their people in a way that involved a lot of idealism, a lot of self-sacrifice, a lot of commitment, and uh, it's like a very romantic way to live. And of course, what we were trying to do from an educational perspective was really make the Jewish students from abroad want that, to want to live those kinds of lives and be those kinds of people. And some of them did and are. Before we talk about how our story intersects with other social justice movements, certainly how that's influenced your ability to speak effectively with uh, whether those you may consider on the quote unquote left or other minority groups who are also experiencing their story. Can you talk about what from your perspective actually is our story? What are our primary grievances? What are our primary aspirations? What are we as a people or what are you specifically trying to do? Well, after the army, after I finished the army, I was already married. And we went to go live in a community called Malezetim, which is pretty deep in, in East Jerusalem. And, you know, it was pretty much a Palestinian neighborhood in East Jerusalem. And we moved there for the purpose of really making it Jewish. Like, that was the point. Like, my wife and I went there to fortify Jerusalem with our bodies and the bodies of our children. That was kind of, at the time, I was interviewed by a filmmaker from Canada who asked me how you can how you can live in such a place like how you can go and you know move your children your wife to such a place and that was the answer that we're you know we're here for the sake of Jerusalem was that the segment from Vice News or was that a different one no it's way before Vice it was like a Canadian filmmaker it was called The Hilltops Right. So uh, I was saying that after, after the army, we came to live in a neighborhood called Ras Alamud to create a Jewish community called Malezetim. We were there for four years. The community is still there. It's uh, grown quite a bit. But one of the side effects of living there was actually getting to know Palestinians. And uh, just because, you know, they lived in the neighborhood and I didn't like the idea of living, you know, kind of behind some fence or, uh, you know, armed whatever. So I felt that it was really important that I walk around the neighborhood, that I interact with the other people in the neighborhood, and that I not be, you know, some, uh, you know, some scared foreigner living behind walls and, you know, and guards and whatever. So as a result, I began to actually see how Palestinians were living. Uh, in the beginning, it was much more, uh, you know, it was easy for me to see suffering and injustice and to attribute it to the policies of the Palestinian Authority, uh, which is also partially true. I don't, I, I don't deny that even now, but you know, it's a process and it took a while for me to actually recognize that there are things fundamentally wrong with Israeli policies and that there's actually a true story taking place on the other side. And it's not just propaganda designed to destroy us or to negate our rights or to, you know, disenfranchise the Jewish people once again. Mm -hmm. So that was important. And, and again, that led to the way in which my journey continued. We, we did ultimately leave that neighborhood and we moved to a community just north of Ramallah uh, called Bet El. And by the time we'd moved there, I had, at the time, I had a radio show on Arucheva. I don't know if people here are familiar with Arucheva, Israel National News, or Israel National Radio. At the time, I had a weekly program there. And I started to meet with Palestinians on a regular basis 
and to try and understand the story that they were living in. And I guess that was roughly 10 years ago. So for the last 10 years, in addition to being somebody who still experiences himself as very deeply committed to Jewish aspirations, to Jewish liberation, I'm also involved with a lot of peace work with Palestinians and uh, trying to understand how we can move forward. For me, just, I guess, in answer to your next question, which was, what is Jewish liberation or how do I understand Jewish liberation? I would say that for me, the main focus of all of my work, of all of the things that I'm doing, is to figure out what Jewish liberation means now. I regard Zionism as a very successful Jewish liberation movement, a revolutionary movement that completely changed our reality, that uh, revived the Hebrew language, that ingathered exiles, that uh, waged a successful anti-colonial struggle against British rule in Palestine. But then in 1967, Zionism brought us back to Jerusalem, brought us back to Zion. And I think that's essentially when Zionism stopped, when Zionism ended, when Zionism succeeded. And I think that since 1967, for the last 53 years, we've been waiting for a new Jewish liberation movement, a new Jewish liberation ideology that can um, clean up the mess that Zionism made while protecting its positive achievements and actually move us forward to use the conditions created by Zionism successes to actually identify and achieve the next goals of Jewish liberation. So a lot of our work right now, whether it's working with Palestinians or some of the political work we do, is really uh, driven by, um, I would say, a broader goal of identifying and trying to achieve the next goals of Jewish liberation. And we have a whole, I represent the vision movement. You know, we have a movement called Vision, a magazine called Vision Magazine, visionmag.org, if anybody's interested. And vision is really, all about trying to figure out what the next goals of Jewish history are so we can empower uh, our generation and the next generation to become thought leaders in, in achieving those goals. Mm -hmm. Before touching upon what some of those goals might be, just because you had emphasized, and I really appreciate this in our conversation, certainly conversations I've had with others, is that for the first time when you actually lived amongst Palestinians or when you were talking with certain leftist groups, once you actually were exposed to these ideas, you could start to understand and appreciate that, you know, not everything that they thought or came out of their mouth was just a means of how can I be the biggest enemy of the Jewish people? How can I be the biggest enemy of Israel? That they very much saw themselves as characters in their own story. They had their own respective worldviews. And for many of them, they were very honestly well-formed, even if you didn't understand them or didn't necessarily agree with them. Can you talk about what that evolution has been like for you? And also, if you can kind of touch upon what are some of these mindsets and motivations of these uh, types of personas and individuals that many of us are trying to reach and have positive conversations with today? Oh, well, to answer your last question first, um, you know, Palestinian society is quite diverse, like Israeli society is quite diverse, and you don't really have just one type of, you know, Palestinian activist. Over the years, we, you know, those of us from the from this movement who have come to the conclusion that peace with the Palestinians or unity with the Palestinians, I think it's like more than just, you know, non-aggression we're looking for, but actual unity with the Palestinians is a goal of Jewish liberation and is something that like we need to achieve in order to move forward 
uh, in our revolution, in the Jewish revolution. Uh, and in engaging Palestinian society, we have met many interesting characters. Some of them were more uh, like Marxist oriented, some of them more, uh, you know, traditional Muslim, uh, some kind of westernized, you know, but still, you know, loyal to their people's struggle and, and wanting to change the material conditions Palestinians live under currently. So we've engaged with a lot of different kinds of Palestinians. And I think, you know, one thing that I think is necessary to, to put out there is in our work with Palestinians, it, it really, a lot of what we do uh, is we organize dialogue sessions that work uh, along the lines of like narrative therapy. And one of the you know, primary objectives, and this is something that I think is addressing a real barrier to us being able to move forward together, one of the objectives is to create the space uh, and the sense of security for activists on both sides to engage the story and identity and narrative of the other without feeling their own narrative threatened. Sure. I uh, just wanted to ask one other thing, and then I think we'll let uh, people use the Q&A to sort of introduce their questions, their thoughts, and help us guide the conversation. Uh, can you talk a little bit about what is it about whether it's the way that we represent ourselves or the majority of Jews represent our, you know, themselves in these conversations with other minority groups, with those who truly want to be allies, of those who do face oppression, those who do face injustice. What is it about the Jewish story or how the Jewish story is being told that is not reaching them or certainly is not reaching them the same way as it does for other groups? Well, first of all, one of the challenges, and this is no one's fault, is that our story is very unique and doesn't fit in neatly with anybody else's story. It's not familiar. You know, usually most, most people's struggles are very easy to universalize because they share major components and major features with other struggles. So it's very easy when you're fighting for something, let's say uh, a Native American tribe fighting against some kind of further encroachment from the US government, you know, maybe hypothetically, you know, pipeline for your reservation, it's very easy to kind of see similarities with the Palestinian struggle um, because it's, those are easy struggles to universalize. Our story is very unique because we're an ancient people that was destroyed. We were broken and scattered throughout the world and somehow against all odds managed to maintain our identity for thousands of years and actually come back to the land we were displaced from reunite and win an anti-colonial struggle and declare independence. So that's something that has, you know, there are elements of that story that resonate or are familiar to other people, but it's also very easy to kind of skew that or uh, depending on how you play with the facts. You know, when I mentioned narratives earlier, uh, it's important to me that, that people understand what I mean when I talk about narratives. Uh, for me, a narrative is a collection of facts that are selectively chosen and contextualized within an ideological worldview. So, for example, when we talk about our, you know, conflict with the Palestinians, the last hundred years of our experience, there are millions of facts. And we each, you know, Israelis and Palestinians tend to select the facts that support our positions, support our understandings of history. 
And we tend to, even if it's subconsciously, just kind of dismiss the facts that don't, you know, neatly fit into our to our story, the story we're telling ourselves and teaching our kids and trying to put out there in the world. So I think it's it's important to um, to realize that. Uh, you know, different facts can be organized in different ways to tell a different story. So it's not that I think one side is lying or telling the truth. I, I think both Israelis and Palestinians are telling the truth about ourselves and getting it very, very wrong when we talk about the other. And, uh, and that, you know, plays into a lot of the work that we do. Uh, but now going back to your, to your question, Justin, mm-hmm. Israel has always had a, had a really, really hard time telling our story, partially because our story is unique, as I said, uh, partially because we haven't figured out what we want. You can't really tell your story to the world or project a, a political message to the world successfully until you really know who you are and know what you want. And I think that's a real a challenge for Israel because Israel, uh, we're still growing. We're still maturing. We're still figuring ourselves out. And we're, we're still you know, some sectors of Israeli society might have more clarity on what our identity is, what we came back to life for after 2000 years. But there are still many, many Israelis, especially Israelis who control most of the wealth and cultural institutions of this country, who really just want Rhodesia. They really just want Israel to be this kind of, you know, Western satellite, uh, or as I think, it might have been Ehud Barak who said, a villa in the jungle. Mm-hmm. This, you know, this kind of, you know, Western satellite in the middle of some savage region. And as long as we're thinking like that, we're, our message will sound colonialist because that is a very colonial way of thinking. But the demographics are shifting in Israel anyway. I don't know if everybody saw Gidon Levy's recent piece in Haaretz where he laments the fact that Jews like me are having so many children and will soon become a much, much, much stronger force in Israeli society. And that's without even getting into the Haredim. So just because Jews like me, you know, the Jews who live out in the West Bank and, uh, and experience ourselves as really living Jewish history in a very deep way, I think it'd be fair to say that I experience myself as somewhat of a biblical character. I think a lot of my friends and neighbors experience themselves as biblical characters. It's a very fun way to live. I suggest people try it at least for a week or two at some point in life. And, um, you know, we're having lots of kids, Baruch Hashem, Haredim, you know, the ultra-Orthodox Jews are having lots of kids, and Palestinians are having lots of kids. But uh, people like Gidon Levi don't have so many kids. And so, you know, this country is changing. And I think as we shift, I know for some American Jews, it's a little bit scary that Israel is becoming such an unrecognizable country and appears on the surface, at least to be so like fundamentalist. Uh, but there is a silver lining and part of what the still like, I think the real silver lining is it'll become easier to get along with our neighbors than, you know, to fit in in the region. But uh, beyond that, I think also in terms of us knowing our identity and realizing that we came back to life for a reason, and that we have a very unique identity, a very unique destiny, a very unique uh, historic mission, and uh, coming back to life and, and having a nation again and, a, and an economy and an army and, and the ability to act on the world stage is only the beginning of, uh, of us actually having an impact on the international community and on history. And I think that's what we came back to life for. Uh, you know, obviously you mentioned, somebody mentioned uh, the protests going on throughout the United States. Uh, regardless of what position 
people take on the protests. Uh, I'm personally supportive, but I don't, you know, just to put that out there, I, I do support the protests, regardless of their positions on Israel, like that's a separate question for me. But um, I think what's clear, regardless of your position, uh, something is wrong, something is broken, something is not working. Uh, and I think that Israel came back to life in order to lead humanity somewhere better. And I think that's, you know, what we're maturing towards. That's an understanding we're maturing towards in our, here, in our land. So I realized in 2005, after the Gaza disengagement, I had been part of the resistance, you know, with the orange ribbons and the orange bracelets and the orange t-shirts, uh, trying to stop Ariel Sharon from carrying out what the George W. Bush had ordered him to carry out, which was the destruction of all Jewish communities in the Gaza region and northern Samaria and uh, the surrender of the entire Gaza region. I, we lost and it was a catastrophe for us, like really. And I saw, I, I forget where I was, I might have been in a, in a restaurant or something, but there was a TV up in the corner and I saw people being interviewed in Norway, in California, all over the world, celebrating as if this was like a great victory for human progress. This catastrophe that we had experienced is really, really, really traumatic event. And that was after I had finished my army service and I realized, you know, we need to tell our story better. We need to, you know, get out there and really make people understand what we're experiencing here because the reaction of the world, good people in the world, these are people who care about justice and, and care about, you know, social equality and, and care about human rights. And, and they were celebrating what we experienced as a total, 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 uh, like devastating catastrophic event. And so that's when I really decided to dedicate myself to going to North American campuses, uh, engaging people, especially on the left, and sharing the story of the Jewish people as I understand it, and as many of my friends and teachers and neighbors and students understand it, but in a language that people who are fighting for social justice and social change on American and Canadian campuses can understand and connect to. Uh, before we field questions from the audience, just because you started to introduce it, um, and I think it's really important to unpack this, given that it's a current event, given that it's such a divisive issue within the Jewish community, not just uh, whether to support, you know, the movement for black lives in the, you know, in terms of a verb, but in terms of a noun, you know, there have been a lot of Jews who have reached out to me and said, you know, I totally support what's going on as far as protests, as far as the injustices that are occurring, but I can't support a movement, being an entity, Black Lives Matter, because of the anti-Zionism in their platform, because of their comments on Jews in the platform. What is it about that you've heard, whether it's about Black Lives Matter itself, or how would you reconcile that for those who are kind of having that internal struggle? First of all, um, when I decided to support or oppose any cause, it, it, my decision is rarely ever based on what do they think of me? Like, I have to ask what is just, what is right? Is there institutionalized systemic racism in the United States? I believe the answer is yes. And if people disagree, that's okay. I believe the answer is yes, based on my experiences, based on where I grew up, what I saw growing up, what I've read, you know, what I see, who I've spoken to, how I understand uh, a lot of features of the American system today. And uh, I'm actually surprised that the 
these protests didn't come about years ago. Uh, like I just, you know, it, it seems a little late to me, but it's happening. And my decision to support it is really based on whether or not I think their cause is just and whether or not there needs to be real systemic change in the United States. And I think there, there does. And I also believe that Israel, um, the Jewish people should be a moral light. I think that part of the problem, I would say, part of the reason they don't support us is because we're not being ourselves. You know, when I hear, you know, I, I come from the perspective that uh, whether on a personal level or a national level, the healthiest response to criticism is not defensiveness, but introspection. I think it's true when uh, people accuse me as an individual of doing things that are problematic, uh, which happens from time to time. It's true, I think, when people criticize Israeli policies. Um, and I think we need to, by the way, sometimes they might be untrue. People have certainly said things about me that I felt were untrue. But I still ask myself, why are they saying this? What am I behaving in a way that is contributing to the misunderstanding? And I think that Israel um, does, at a certain point, Israel as a state, as a nation, does need to make a conscious decision to be on the side of the oppressed and not the side of the oppressors in the world. And I think that's part of the problem. I, I, maybe it would be helpful if I clarify what I understand to be systemic anti-Semitism, because I imagine that by now, you know, most of the people who are on the call know what is meant when somebody speaks about systemic racism. I hope that just after a couple of weeks of these protests and, and not only the protests themselves, but the news cycles generated by the protests, I hope that everybody here understands the concept of systemic racism. Uh, but I'd like to speak about something that's less understood and that is systemic anti-Semitism and uh, how anti-Semitism works as a system of oppression. It's not just people hating Jews. We've actually fought many wars in our history against people who you know, we had problems with or they had problems with us, but I wouldn't call those instances anti-Semitism. I think the way anti-Semitism works as a system of oppression, I, I, maybe the best way to explain it would be to uh, illustrate how it worked under feudalism. You know, in feudal Europe, the medieval ages, Jews were not lords. We were not part of the ruling class, but we were also not peasants. We were something in the middle. We were called like middle agent oppressors. In many ways, we were uh, money lenders and tax collectors. We were essentially a vulnerable buffer group that was enlisted by the ruling class to manage the oppression of the peasants. And there Just was a- to clarify, we weren't allowed to be in the castle or amongst the peasantry and allowed to have a lot of the economic or positional opportunities that come with being in either of those places. Right. Right. No, we were systemically kept out of those roles. We were systemically kept in a very specific role in society. And that was a role that often brought us into conflict with the peasants or, or caused the peasants to experience us as uh, responsible for their oppression. So we were very much the shock absorbers of uh, Europe's class societies. Anti-Semitism developed as a strategy employed by those in power to deflect blame for systemic injustices. The Jews were middle agents who were drafted into being the local representatives of a distant ruling class uh, that exploited them while squeezing the lifeblood out of Europe's peasants and workers. 
And it's actually a scholar named uh, Aurora Levins Morales who explains that the whole point of anti-Semitism uh, had been to create this vulnerable buffer group that could be bribed with some, uh, with some privileges and protection into managing the exploitation of others. So Jewish populations would often cooperate with the ruling classes of Europe because our own experiences of persecution made us desperate for a sense of security. But when the social pressure would build, the buffer group uh, would be blamed, like the Jews would be blamed and scapegoated in order to distract the peasants, to distract those at the bottom from the crimes of those at the top. And peasants who initiated pogroms against their Jewish neighbors generally didn't make it to the nobleman's castle to burn them out and seize the fields. So this is basically how anti-Semitism worked. It was a way to uh, essentially distract the peasants from the real, uh, th those who were really responsible for their suffering uh, because the Jew was the quote unquote oppressor they would experience daily or weekly or what have you. Uh, and the Jew was a good target, was a good uh, lightning rod, I guess, for their rage when they had had enough. And I think that's obviously like a very raw understanding of how systemic anti-Semitism works. I think in the United States today, just like um, systemic racism is largely subtle to the point where a person can miss it completely if it doesn't affect them personally. And even those who feel affected by it personally can sometimes be convinced of just being paranoid. I think anti-Semitism also functions that way. It, it functions in a very subtle way, but it's certainly since World War II. I would say that before World War II, a lot of Jews in the United States were experiencing a lot of the same challenges as other minority populations, as other immigrant groups. But after the war, we were offered inclusion. We were offered, uh, I would say, for lack of a better term, a probationary whiteness or conditional whiteness, where we were offered inclusion through, you know, programs like the GI Bill and, you know, urban sprawl, et cetera. But we're never, you know, we were kind of admitted into the club, but uh, always with the concern, always with the trauma of our, of our history that, and a sensitivity to reality that we're probably not permanently included, that things can go wrong at any moment. And I think that fear that this can go wrong at any moment is a fear, uh, is an anxiousness and anxiety that very much drives a lot of the policies and statements of the organized Jewish community in the United States. I think a lot of the institutions, federations, schools, camps, youth movements, pro-Israel organizations, etc., all function to a certain extent, you know, with this elephant in the room that things can go bad here too. That what's happened to us, you know, in every other diaspora that we've gone to, every other host nation, especially Ashkenazim, by the way, I think that this sense of insecurity and the sense of vulnerability is actually uniquely strong among Ashkenazim, uh, largely because our history is more traumatic than other Jews. No, I think that's a very good way of looking at it. Um, just to make sure we have time to answer people's questions, I'd like to start with this one. Um, does Jewish diversity, whether that's racial, ethnic, or cultural, complicate the argument that Jews are indigenous to the region? Or how can that be addressed without denying or ignoring that Jews are not a monolith? Like how Jews develop, you know, over time in different 
parts of the world. We're talking again, thousands of years, you know, and, and we're also talking about people who joined us. At the end of the day, when we speak about Jewish identity, and this is something important to understand, is that Jews have a unique understanding of identity that's not necessarily shared with other peoples, at least not today. Uh, we have a very primordialist understanding of identity. You know, we tell ourselves at every Pesach Seder that we left Egypt, that we are that identity, that we are the direct descendants of the 12 tribes of Israel or those who joined those 12 tribes along the way. And like any ancient people, um, we've always had a ritual that turns outsiders into insiders. I don't think the fact that a non-Jew can become a Jew makes that individual any less connected to our story or to our homeland. I think that when somebody joins us, they're joining a story, they're joining a people, they're joining a history. That's one of the reasons that when a, a person becomes a Jew, we refer to him as Ben Avraham. He suddenly takes on the identity of being a son of Avraham, our ancestor. Uh, so that's part of the answer. And also, by the way, we didn't all, uh, we weren't all only in exile for the same amount of time. For the most part, um, Ashkenazi Jews are the Jews who were in Judea, in the land of Israel, in Palestine, whatever term you want, during the Second Temple period. During, like, for example, during the Hanukkah story. When the Hanukkah story took place, when the Maccabees had a 26-year guerrilla war against the Syrian Greeks, the Jews here at that time later became what we call the Ashkenazim, or some became Sfaradim, whereas the Jews who we now know to be Mizrahim were the diaspora Jews then, were in Yemen, were in Persia, were in Mesopotamia, or Babylon, what's now Iraq, were in uh, Alexandria or Syria, um, and similar to diaspora Jews today, were living quite comfortably and were not looking to give up the comforts enjoyed in those places to come back and participate in rebuilding you know, Hebrew civilization in the land of Israel. But like many American Jews today, a lot did send money and uh, you know, and moral support to the Maccabee underground and later to the Zealot underground in our fight against the Romans. So that's a unique experience that Ashkenazim specifically have, um, that we were the Jews who fought the Greeks, we were the Jews who fought the Romans, we were the Jews who were sold into slavery uh, and became gladiators, and unfortunately in some cases prostitutes and slaves, and ultimately kind of migrated from Rome to, to Germany and France and Russia and places like that, and, and suffered very, very, very uh, harsh and traumatic persecution in most of those places for many, many centuries. And that, I think, gives Ashkenazim specifically a, a very unique uh, experience, a very unique story, and a very unique history of oppression and legacy of revolution that might not be shared with other Jewish populations who are in other diasporas. Another question we have here, and uh, this is certainly something you and I have talked about at length, and I think it's very important, um, just as an understanding of Israel, it isn't so relevant necessarily to the social justice-oriented component of our conversation, but I still think it's appropriate nonetheless. Uh, one person is asking, without a two-state solution, because you've talked about your role, your activity, your belief system, how does Israel stay a Jewish democracy without that two-state framework? 
Well, that obviously requires us to define terms like democratic and Jewish. So uh, for me, first, I guess, uh, I'll define democracy as I understand it. And again, my understanding of democracy isn't the only one, but this is the one I'm functioning with. I would define democracy as a, uh, as a system that empowers people to influence the structures they live under. Okay. So that could involve voting, but uh, voting doesn't necessarily mean you have a democracy. And for me, democracy is people power. Now, you guys, many of you are supposedly heading to elections this November. We'll see. Where, yeah, right, maybe. And you're going to have a choice between Donald Trump and Joe Biden. Now, that doesn't feel very empowering. You know, if I, I don't vote in American elections, but if I did, I probably would sit this one out because I couldn't see myself supporting either one of those candidates and wanting either one of those people to run you know, the country I live in. Uh, beyond that, uh, I would say, in general, even before getting into the question of Trump, because I think Trump is somewhat of an anomaly, I think that generally the way the American political system works is it's a corporatocracy, meaning you generally have two candidates who are funded by the same corporations, special interest groups, lobby groups, and um, one of them wins. And whether we're talking about a presidential race or a congressional race or, uh, you know, or, or a local race, you know, somebody wins. And for the next four years or whatever, that person, that public servant supposedly, is much more interested in doing what the corporations who funded his campaign and will hopefully fund his next campaign want of him than the people who voted for him. So I would actually say that the United States is not a democracy. It's, um, I mean, it's a republic, but it's not, um, I, I think there's an illusion of democracy where everybody's encouraged to participate in a popularity contest every four years, while the candidates are much more indebted to the corporations and billionaires who fund their campaigns than to the people who actually voted for them. So I'm looking, so, so I don't, I, I brought that up only to illustrate the point that democracy and voting aren't necessarily synonymous. And I would support in Israel a method of um, a democratic system that is not based on voting and not based on representation, but rather direct, a participatory democracy, which is also a lot more Jewish than representative democracy. And I guess that brings us to the question of what makes a state Jewish. Right now, we essentially have a, um, a European-style nation-state with Jewish decorations. And we call it a Jewish state. And those Jewish decorations are too Jewish for Palestinians and not Jewish enough for the Haredim. And that's a problem. Because as we said before, Haredim and Palestinians are two of the fastest growing populations between the river and the sea. So I would say the Jewish character of the state of Israel right now is very hard very exclusivist, very othering, yet at the same time, very shallow and um, unfulfilling for those who have deep Jewish identities and uh, lots of Jewish education. What so, are some examples of that uh, sort of shallowness or the way you see shallow in that case? Um, 
just kind of like the focus on, again, the state being just like a Western European state, but with lots of uh, symbols that remind you constantly that it's a Jewish state, that it has some kind of Jewish identity, uh, whether it's, um, and again, I'm, I'm happy with the flag. I'm not advocating we change the flag, but an example would be, I'm again, David, on the flag. Um, it's not that I don't like the flag. In fact, I think that's probably a, a flag that really represents our identity on a deep level. I actually don't think the flag is so shallow, but it's an example of a national symbol. Or, you know, Hatikva, our national anthem. I think our national anthem uh, speaks to a very different chapter of Jewish history. And, um, but it, it's composed in such a way that if one is not a Jew, he doesn't identify with it. So I'm interested in making the state of Israel more deeply Jewish than it is right now, but at the same time, more softly Jewish. So for example, instead of um, our courts functioning according to British common law, I would want our courts to function according to Jewish common law. Meaning that if your dog were to damage my bicycle and we were to go to court, I don't think the judge should rule according to a British understanding of torts but rather according to what our sages, you know, developed in Masechet Babakama, you know, in, in the Talmud. Because that's not, and it's not religious. It's actually the Jewish people's ancient understanding of what justice means in a situation where one person's property damages another's. That's a, that, that is an example of a legal structure and a legal uh, understanding of what justice means developed by our people over many, 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 many centuries. And I don't think that that type of justice would uh, be any, should be any less legitimate than a British form of justice. And I think it might even be more familiar to both our people and to Palestinians here. So I, I'm thinking, you know, I think in order for us to be able to move forward, we have to have a, we have to understand, like I said before, what's important to both peoples. What are the grievances and aspirations on both sides? What, you know, what are the real narratives? Not without projecting, without us kind of superimposing our fantasy antagonist on the other, but actually trying to understand what are the real grievances and aspirations of the Jewish people, of the Palestinian people, and to try to create a society here between the river and the sea that Jews experience as the fulfillment of our aspirations for thousands of years, as a deeply Jewish state that expresses our identity and its policies and institutions constantly, and Palestinians experienced as a democracy where they have full equality and barely notice it's a Jewish state. So, and I think we can do that because I think that um, if we were to go deep with the Jewish identity of the state, most Palestinians would barely notice. Um, even many Jews who are disconnected from their own identity might barely notice, but the average Haredi child would see the Jewishness being manifested and expressed in almost every policy and institution. And I think uh, that's where we need to go, a Jewish state that's more softly Jewish, but more deeply Jewish than what we have right now. And I think that could satisfy both peoples quite easily. And with a participatory democracy, uh, demography is not an issue. And even if demography was an issue, uh, I think a strong argument could be made that between the Haredi and, uh, you know, for lack of a better word, settler, I don't like the word settler, I actually find it very offensive, but just to make the conversation easy, you know, between our birth rates and the, Palestine and, and the Haredi birth rates, um, 
I think that, you know, I, I don't think that we're about to lose the Jewish majority, but even if it's close, I think that we need to create a, a situation where it's irrelevant. And I think participatory democracy achieves that while at the same time actually being an ancient Jewish model of democracy. To go back to what we were discussing with uh, Black Lives Matter and where Jews kind of fit themselves into that, uh, we have one question that's asking, um, people say the way Blacks are treated in the United States is the same way that Palestinians are treated by Israelis. What are your thoughts about that comparison, but also how you would respond to that in actual conversation with someone? I don't think it's comparable. Uh, I, I understand why, on a very superficial level, it looks materially similar. But I would say what's happening in Israel is the result of a 100-year ethnic conflict where you know two sides, which has been horizontal at certain points in history and has sometimes been not horizontal. But right now, the Jews have gained the upper hand in a big way, like I think we, and largely because of our own fears, we felt that we have to create all of these kind of oppressive structures, um, you know, checkpoints, walls, restrictions on freedom of movement, uh, in order to keep our people safe. Like most Israelis believe very deeply that if we were to take our thumb off the Palestinians, they would just start blowing up buses and cafes and nightclubs like they were when I moved here. The fear is not based on nothing. And that's the result of a war that's been going on for 100 years, at least what the Israelis experience as a war. I know that most Palestinians, in my experience, don't experience this as a conflict. They see it as just one-sided oppression. But I think that is partially the result of being ahistorical or not, uh, you know, not understanding what the other side has experienced uh, this whole time. And, and remember, most of Israeli society tends to regard Palestinians as an extension of the Arab states around us who have tried to wipe us out many times, and Palestinians themselves on occasion have participated in those efforts, specifically in 1948. So I think you can't compare it to racism in the United States, which I think, uh, first of all, began with the actual kidnapping of Africans from their land and forcing them into slave labor for hundreds of years, and then kind of institutionalizing racism once slavery is abolished um, to the point that it really permeates uh, American society on so many levels. Uh, I, I think also the solutions are very different. But uh, the good news is I actually believe it would be easier for Israelis and Palestinians to move forward together at this point than to heal the rifts in, in the United States. I think there's just a lot that hasn't been addressed or healed that was supposed to be healed. It's a good segue to this next question, and I'm going to sort of re-paraphrase what's being asked here. Um, but there are obviously entities that are advancing their own agendas that very much are not in line with our agendas or the Jewish agenda or the Israeli agenda. So examples of this are the Palestinian Authority itself, Hamas, entities like UNRWA, which is the Palestinian Refugee Agency. Uh, all these entities have a significant influence and leverage over the Palestinian population. What can we do to work with Palestinians or at least to reconfigure the dynamic that allows us 
to better advance our agenda in a way that actually suits Palestinian, genuine Palestinian interests? Well, the, the first question, the, the first answer is to know your agenda. I think the problem with a lot of Jews and a lot of Israelis is that we haven't really defined our agenda. Once we define our agenda, I think it's a lot easier for us to be able to promote that agenda or to find allies whose objectives actually overlap with ours. Mm -hmm. What Israel could do as a state to change the role that we play in the Palestinian movie, I think that's like a lot of what we need to do essentially is we need, we both need to change the roles we play in the narrative and the story and the movie of the other. So something I think that Israel could do to begin the process of changing the role we play in the minds of Palestinians is to start taking responsibility for civil servant salaries. You know, if we want, if we're serious about annexation, if we're serious about Judea and Samaria being part of our homeland and us wanting to be sovereign, then we have to take responsibility. I think it's much, I, I have a problem with this language of us having a right to land. I don't think that we have a right to land. I think we have a, an obligation to certain land. I think we have a responsibility to certain land. I relate to this country, all of it, including Gaza, as my, my soulmate, not just my homeland, my soulmate. And therefore, I feel a responsibility to it and to the people who live here. And I think that right now, because at least a third of Palestinian society are civil servants and are dependent on the Palestinian Authority, and, and others are dependent on UNRWA, paychecks, etc., we have to be able to, for lack of a better term, entice them away. And I think that can be done by paying Israeli-level salaries, which are often roughly four times what civil servants in Palestinian society make. So I think offering Israeli-level salaries, meaning if the average bus driver in Ramallah or policeman in Janine or school teacher in Bethlehem or hospital worker in Tokarim were to start receiving in their mailbox every month an Israeli salary that's equal to what Israelis who work those jobs are making alongside their Palestinian Authority paycheck. I think after a few months of receiving that Israeli paycheck, they would be uh, not, I, I don't think ready to trust us 100%, but I think that starting to pay their salaries would ultimately open them up to different ways of relating to us and different ways of understanding us. We'd obviously have to follow this up. Ultimately, you know, we can't have a wall running through the middle of our country. We can't uh, infringe on people's freedom of movement with checkpoints. Part of that is also something we need to get over. I think in many ways, Palestinians are victims of a Jewish identity crisis. You know, 53 years ago, we came back to the cradle of Jewish civilization, but we didn't know what to do with it. You know, on the one hand, these are the lands, you know, Bethlehem and Hebron and Beit El and Shiloh and Shechem and Jericho, Jerusalem, that we've been dreaming about for thousands of years, coming back to this is where our ancestors lived, etc. And this is where so much of our na national history and mythology uh, played out. Uh, but on the other hand, we knew the Americans and the Europeans didn't want us here. But on the other hand, we knew we needed the, you know, these mountains to defend our most densely populated areas in Tel Aviv, uh, you know, the airport, the stock exchange, the Knesset, etc. cetera. Uh, but on the other hand, we have all these non-Jews. What are we going to do with them? Are we going to make them citizens? Are we going to not make them citizens? And for the last 53 years, we've been doing nothing and everything and saying we're doing one thing, but really doing another. And I don't blame Palestinians for being frustrated. And so in many ways, I think they're victims of an identity crisis that we need to work out. 
And once we figure out who we are, what we're doing here, that we're not leaving, it would, that, that this is our land and we have to be loyal to our land, uh, you know, loyal to the homeland, just like we're loyal to each other. We have to, uh, I think they'll start to, to realize who we are and relate to us in a way that's much more positive than the way they're relating to us today. Because I think right now, even though we might use this notion of indigeneity as a, as a Hasbara's and Israel advocacy talking point, we're essentially still projecting a very colonialist identity. And I think it comes, it comes out of the mouths of our politicians, even some of our most Jewishly connected politicians. You know, just the other day, uh, Bitsala Smotrich, who on some issues I think I see eye to eye with, uh, he said the other day that we need to westernize the Bedouin. And he might be one of the, you know, the deeper members of Knesset that we have. And I think that the fact that he doesn't get it, it means we're still in a little bit of trouble. That we really do need to have what I would call uh, a post-colonial conversation. You know, we came back to our land, we freed our country from the British, but we essentially put our flag on their system. Like we fought the British, we took down their flag, but we put our flag on the British mandate. And that's what we called a Jewish state. And part of it was because, you know, Israelis are very good at coming up with short-term solutions to urgent problems. And we didn't want to have the national conversation over, you know, who we are and what we're doing here and what our society should be and, and what kind of, uh, you know, what kind of policies should be, you know, and structures should be created to express our identity. We didn't do any of that, but now we have to do it. And that, I think, is one of the goals of Jewish liberation in this generation to really figure out what makes a state Jewish. Uh, and in such a way, this is like a long answer to the original question, right? In such a way that allows us to have a fully democratic society that is deeply Jewish in the entire land of Israel. We have time for one more question. And given current events or, you know, effectively you know, the process you've taken us through as far as your own personal evolution, our historical evolution, certainly how the conflict has transformed. But to keep it in line with sort of current issues that are very much on people's mind, the majority of our audience are young people in the United States who really are passionate about Israel, passionate about being Jewish, but also, and not not at the exclusion of, uh, want to be very passionate about other social justice movements that they see true injustice of. Uh, One question we have, and I'll paraphrase here, is, what can we do when having these conversations about Black Lives Matter, uh, you know, especially when the conversation of Israel comes up, whether that's the accusation that uh, American police are trained by the IDF with these lethal tactics, and that's resulted in the death of so many African-Americans by American police. Uh, what advice do you have for having these conversations and effectively showing up as our true authentic self in a way that is not, we're not white allies, but also like that's, we're here to actually be here with you and not to take away the spotlight of what you're trying to achieve. I actually wrote an article last week in Vision Magazine. Everyone should go to visionmag.org. And if you find any of these ideas interesting, subscribe, get the weekly newsletter. Uh, I wrote an article last week called On Jews and Whiteness, where uh, I think I answer your question quite thoroughly. It's valuable to go through. I actually think that uh, I poured a lot into it, and I hope that it's valuable for those who read it. But uh, the short answer is, as you said, we should be showing up as our full selves and not as privileged white allies. If we're going to show up for Black lives, we don't do it as apologetic liberal white people. We do it as Jews with our own struggles, with our own history of oppression, with our own legacy of revolution, with our own unique set of experiences, and with an understanding of how our struggles actually do intersect with theirs. 
and with an understanding of how systemic anti-Semitism works, with an understanding of how systemic racism works, and with an understanding that they are both systems of oppression being uh, perpetrated by the same power structure. And with the ability to communicate to people leading these protests that when they attack Jews or they attack Jewish neighborhoods, or even when they criticize Israel to a certain extent, they are actually falling into the trap of anti-Semitism, as I laid out before, um, and actually being manipulated by the same power structure they think they're fighting against. Part of the problem is the Jewish community, the, the organized Jewish community, and certainly the organized pro-Israel establishment is very bad at teaching allyship. Like, very bad at sensitizing people. Well, he, here's the problem. I think, and, and I apologize if this is a little bit controversial, I think because of the unique conditional inclusion that Jews have been granted in American society, the organized Jewish community at least, and uh, this is especially true for Jews on the right, but I think for liberal Jews as well, uh, not Jews on the left, Jews on the left are actually doing pretty good when it comes to this, but liberal and conservative Jews I think have a problem with really needing to believe that America works that capitalism is a just system. And as long as you believe those things, you're not gonna be able to understand what marginalized groups are feeling oppressed by. Meaning as long as you're convinced that the system works and it's fair, and as long as, you know, you, what's it, bootstrap theory, you pull yourself up by your bootstraps and you work hard and you can succeed, it's not the way the system really works. And I suggest, exploring that because if you don't explore that you're not going to understand how these systems of oppression actually work and if you don't know how these systems of oppression actually work you're not going to be able to really express solidarity or explain how your struggle actually intersects with theirs you know when i criticize american capitalism i don't just see racism as an integral pillar of american capitalism I see forcing a two-state solution on Israel as also being an integral pillar of American capitalism. Meaning I think there are very strong economic interests in the United States that push towards a two-state solution. And that's why that no matter who is in the White House since 1967, the consistent American policy has been to divide our land into two separate states, each dependent on Washington for survival. So I think our own interest in resisting the two-state solution requires us to understand what is driving the two-state solution. And I think that's a conversation that people with Black Lives Matter can hear. Thank you so much, Yehuda. We actually have a lot of questions here remaining, and unfortunately, we don't have the time to address them all. But how can people follow up with you to communicate with you, to read more about what you're doing at Vision, and to really kind of continue exploring these ideas? I do want to say that this really is the tip of the iceberg. There is a lot to discuss. I really encourage anybody who's interested to contact me. Uh, Justin, you should feel free to share my email with anyone who expresses an interest in continuing the conversation. I think I'm pretty accessible. I encourage everyone to go to visionmag.org, Vision Magazine. You can subscribe to the newsletter. You can check out some of the articles, some of the poetry, some of the analysis, some of the opinion pieces some of the videos. I also have a podcast if anyone's interested. It's called The Next Stage and you can find it on all the relevant platforms and you could access it through Vision Mag as well. If you just go to audio, you should be able to find The Next Stage podcast. I think the last one we did was actually about this very issue of 
whether or not Jews should be showing up for Black Lives Matter, and if so, in what capacity, how, et cetera. So uh, th- these are issues we do try to deal with. And again, like I'm still growing also, you know, as we said in the beginning, my trajectory is what it is. I came to this country a very, very deep nationalist. I'm still a very deep nationalist. You know, I often say that Feel for Truth is a gateway drug into Jewish national consciousness. I'd say the vision movement is like a national consciousness overload to the point that we end up sounding like leftists. But it's because the Jewish nationalism got so deep and strong and, and big that it just kind of exploded into universalism. And ultimately, that is, I think, what we came back to life for. I think that really needs to drive the conversations we're having. What is Israel's mission in history? What did we come back to life for after 2,000 years? And how can we turn the state of Israel into the vehicle to achieve the vision of our ancestors and prophets and sages and create the world that we want to see, which coincidentally, I think, happens to be a very similar world to what the movement for Black Lives and many of their allies want to see. No, well said. Uh, Thank you again for doing this webinar with us. Uh, We'd love to have you back to do a follow-up, obviously discuss the myriad of topics that we discuss offline that I think are especially helpful and interesting for this population and what they're trying to see, what they're trying to achieve. Uh, Just as a reminder for everyone uh, to read more of Yehuda's writings, especially, and to keep in touch and to see what he's been doing, visionmag.org. I will send out his email in the follow-up email from this webinar. And of course, us at Fuel for Truth, fuelfortruth.org. Please visit to learn more about us and how you can support our great work and the great work of all these organizations. 